We are glad that you're here today. As Kevin said, my name is Joel McCarty, um, and I am the pastor for uh, preaching and oversight, which means I get to just serve as one of the pastors of this body, and it is a privilege to do that. Um, I really mean that. I'm excited to be here every week with you as we gather as the church. Um, I was reminded this week, we were praying, um, Kevin and I and Blake, just as um, just praying for you guys as a body by name, and I was just as I focused on that and thought about that, I was reminded how privileged I am to just be a part of your lives um, and to be able um, to just get to be a part of your highs and your lows and everything in between. And so we're honored that we get to be a part of your lives. Um, I do want to ask you guys to continue to pray for God to provide for us in regard to our facility situation. So as I mentioned last week, we we have four more weeks left here, including today, so through the rest of May. And our clear ask to our Heavenly Father is that we would be gathering together for corporate worship at 723 Bank Street um, on June 6th. So a little update, as of Friday, we are officially under a sales contract, so that's a good thing. Uh, That's a next step in the phase, and so we're officially in what's called our due diligence period, where we get to um, get inspections, we get to meet with the city and make sure everything's up to code and all that, figure out how much work we have to do in there. Uh, We originally had planned to do more in there when we started, but now we're like, hey, we're going to do the bare minimum as possible, and we'll just meet together, um, and we're a church plant, so we'll we'll figure it out together along the way. Um, For those who weren't here or maybe don't remember, Um, Our long-term vision for the building is to be this center where we can cultivate flourishing and community here in our city. Um, So to that end, and this is just to keep you guys in the loop, we'll be calling the building the Garden Center. And so it won't be called New Eden Church because we are the church. And so that's just a place where we meet. Um, It will be New Eden's primary place to gather on Sunday mornings. It will be set up for that. Uh, But we also want it to be used in the Monday through Saturday as well for community and missional opportunities. And so we're asking for prayer. This is kind of unique in a lot of ways. And so there's a lot of just weird things and hoops we have to jump through. And so pray for wisdom for Kevin and I um, as we get advice from other people and how we best set that up. But we're super excited about what God has in store. Um, Also pray for us that we would find rhythms of rest during this busy season for both us and our families because there is a lot going on. So as a family, one of the things we've been busy with recently is Caden's baseball season. And so we feel like we spend a lot of our lives at the baseball fields there on Flint. Um, And so it's just been great, though, to plug into the community to further meet people. One of the things we're getting to do next Sunday afternoon is uh, one of Caden's coaches invited me and him to go to one of the Trash Pandas baseball games. Um, And so we're excited about being able to go enjoy that. Now, personally, I don't know if you, you like events like that. I'm not a big fan of live sporting events. Um, I would much rather sit in the comfort of my own home in a climate-controlled environment where I can see high-definition, instant replay. I can hear commentators. I know what's going on, and the food is reasonably priced, right? Um, that's, I, I enjoy doing that. Now, some people love going to sporting events, but I feel like you've got to at least go once and kind of have the experience. And Caden's getting to the point where he's old enough to appreciate that. I have this rule. Uh, my wife doesn't always agree, but like my, my approach to this is if they're not going to remember or appreciate the experience, I'm not going to spend money for it. I'm like, wait till they get old enough. Like, they're just going to know it from pictures. Like, let's wait a little bit, you know? But then it's hard because, you know, you got the older kids that would remember and the younger kids that don't. And so anyways, but so it was, it was fun talking to Kate and explaining to him what the trash pandas were and how they were double A and there was a triple A and then they have the major leagues. And then I was explaining college football. We were talking about how, how many people a stadium could hold, right? And I was telling him like, yeah, trash pandas, I don't know what it is. Maybe some of you guys know. It can't be more 
more than probably five to 10,000, something like that. But I was like, you know, college football game, like you're talking to 100,000 people at some stadiums. And he's just trying to fathom. I'm like, you know, like the stadium's taller than these huge trees over here you're looking at. And he's like, what? Just trying to like imagine what that's like. And, and it's like this, he, he's just so excited to go, you know, and for him, it's this big, man, magnificent thing. But there's something about all of us that likes to connect ourselves with something that's like huge and great and magnificent. And especially if we can get like a front row seat or like a field level pass or like at a behind the scenes concert, you know, we love that experience. Um, I've had the opportunity to take some photos at decent sized concerts, like for the Christian world. So, you know, like the subculture of Christianity, uh, those type of concerts, but it's always been fun. Um, when I was working for Summit Crossing, they had this really nice camera and this big old lens and I would just carry it. And it's amazing the places you can get into. If you got a long lens strapped on your, you know, professional lens strapped on your chest, just walking around, you know, and I'd just walk up to the front and people would be getting out of the way just so I could, you know, experience it. And then I snap a few pictures and then enjoy the show. I would have, I was at, we were at cross conference and KB was doing a concert. And so I'm up there in the front and I'm not making this up. They're like, are you KB's photographer, man? Like asking me all these questions. I'm like, no, I'm just here with this camera, you know, but it's fun to just kind of be up front, you know, and get that behind the scenes. Look today in our story, the disciples, specifically two of them, Philip and Andrew, and then this little unnamed boy are both going to get this kind of behind the scenes look, this insider access to something much bigger than just a sporting event or a concert. They get to take part in this massive miracle that Jesus does. And he's doing it to set up an important conversation that's going to happen in a couple weeks. We'll see that then. But as you heard read, our text today is going to come from John chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. Um, if you want to follow along in the scriptures, we should have it on the screen if everything goes smooth. Um, but, but for many of us, if you heard the story read, if you were listening to Kelly as she read it, you've probably been pretty familiar with the story, more than most. The story is a very common one. It's the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you grew up in a church setting, it's probably one you heard in Sunday school, right? If you're just like this little boy and you give the, the little gifts that you have to Jesus, he's going to take those gifts and make them really big and it's something miraculous, right? And, and unlike some Sunday school lessons we heard growing up, that's actually not far from the, the point of this story. It's not that far off. You know, some I look back and I'm like, what were they telling us? Like, it totally missed the point of the story. But this one, it's, it's not that far off. But as we dive deeper, I think we'll see that even though God uses this little boy, there's an even bigger hero to our story, and that's Jesus himself. So there's three things we're going to see about Jesus during our time together today. So first, we're going to see the compassion of Jesus. We're going to see his compassion. Secondly, we're going to see the patience of Jesus. We're going to see how patient and kind and loving and gracious he is. And then to end it, and it's kind of the driving point of the story, we're going to see the provision of Jesus. The provision of Jesus. So first, let's look at the compassion of Jesus. Quick review. If you remember our story, we ended last week with this monologue from Jesus about who he was, about he, he talked to these group of religious leaders that were frustrated with him. They wanted to persecute him. And then after that, 
Sometime after that, we're not told when, but we just, in John 6, 1, we heard read, our story picks up with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias for the Gentile audience reading the Gospel of John. So this is away from Jerusalem up north. Um, Jesus, as we've seen at this point, has been performing many miracles and signs and healings. And even though some of the religious leaders are really getting frustrated with him, as far as just the common people, they seem to still be very intrigued by this Jesus guy. What's going on? At this time, culturally, they've been looking for a political Messiah. Someone to come overthrow the oppressive Roman rule that was there at the time. They're looking for someone like Moses did when he freed the nation of Israel out of Egypt years ago. And so this guy seems like a good fit, right? Jesus, he's a pretty powerful guy. If I want somebody to lead my army, seems like a good fit. And so this crowd, you probably have a a, a general mix. You have those that are enthusiastic, that are all in about Jesus. And then you probably have some that are kind of sitting on the fringes, wanting to see the show, maybe a little skeptical even. And then you probably have everything in between, right? But this crowd begins following him and the crowd's growing at this point. And in verse three, we're told that Jesus, because these crowds are following him, he breaks away for some rest to just get along with his disciples, his closest 12. Now, most likely this was for the purpose of rest. We see Jesus do this a lot in the scriptures. It's also for him to commune with his father and also for him to teach his disciples, kind of more one-on-one, to talk about what's going on in his kingdom and in the world. And so there he is spending this time alone. And not long after, this crowd comes again towards him. It was almost like this cat and mouse type game where the crowd would come, Jesus would get away. And they're like, where'd he go? Like, let's find Jesus. Oh, we heard he's over here. Let's go find him. And so the crowd's coming towards him and he sees this massive crowd of at least 15,000 people. We're told later in the text, huge crowd coming to see Jesus. That's where our story really gets going today. Look at John 6, 5. It says, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people may eat? So Jesus sees and notices, I love that language, and Jesus will notice something. He notices the crowd coming towards him and he stops what he's doing, even though he's trying to get some rest and have a little bit of time away, and he addresses their immediate need. And this is where we get to see the compassion of Jesus on display. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus knows the hearts of men, right? We've seen that already in John. He knows that many of the people in this crowd, not long after this, they're going to leave. They're not going to like his teaching. We're going to see it in a couple weeks. He also understands that many of them are only after the show. He's also trying to get away for some much needed time of silence and solitude. But he kind of sets that all on hold so that he can deal with the immediate need of this massive crowd. Now, the low estimates of the size of this crowd are around 15,000 people. As I said, this wasn't just a few people. There's a huge need here, but Jesus has compassion on them. We're told in one gospel that he looked on them and saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They were looking for someone to lead them. These people were wanting purpose. There's got to be something more in this life. They're empty, not just physically, but spiritually emotionally, mentally, they want something more. And I love this because Jesus has compassion on them. And when we find ourselves empty and we find ourselves in need, this is also how Jesus deals with us. He cares about our hunger, both physical and spiritual. 
And when we have to understand this, Jesus does deal with like the big cosmic stuff in the world, but he also intimately cares about the need that's staring you right in the face. He's not too big to care about your daily sustenance. He's compassionate and he sees and he notices your struggle just as he did the need of this crowd. And I love this because Jesus not only sees, but he initiates. He didn't wait for the crowd to come to him and say, hey, Jesus, we're hungry. We know you turn water into wine. We know you're pretty powerful. Can you do something about it? No, he starts the conversation. He takes the first step. He brought up the subject. And I love when the spirit does that with us. Sometimes it's painful because we don't even know we have the need. But the spirit initiates. And so he asks Philip this question, showing that he's compassionate and that he cares. But I also want you to see something else in this question. See, Jesus could have just waved his hand, spoke a word, right? He's got the power to do this, had a thought, said a silent prayer to his father, made food appear for all these people. But by asking Philip this question and by involving not only Andrew, but this little boy as we're about to see into this journey, he's inviting them into his process in the world. He's inviting them to have a behind the scenes look with what he's about to do so that they might be caught up in the story of God and see themselves as playing a part. He doesn't want them to just get dragged along for the journey. He wants to patiently and lovingly form them into who they were created to be, into his own image. And this is where we begin to see the patience of Jesus. We saw his compassion. Now we see his patience. Look at verse six and seven. We see the motivation behind this question. He asked this to test him, Philip. He was testing Philip for he himself, Jesus, knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread. Would it be enough for each of them to have a little? So Jesus asked Philip, where can we buy bread for everyone? We're told he asked Philip the question to test him. So Jesus is inviting him into this process. This isn't a testing like we often think of where you're trying to like catch someone in a trap, right? Tempting them or baiting them to mess up. That's not what's going on. This is Jesus helping Philip grow. This is Jesus creating a moment. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He's creating this moment that Philip will look back on for the rest of his life. And it would grow him in faith. He would remember God's provision and not only his provision, but the patience that he had with him. But in the moment, Philip doesn't understand all that. So he gives this, if you look at it, it's really actually a snarky response, right? It's something that I would say if Jesus said this to me, because I'm pretty snarky. 200 denarii was approximately eight months of wages. So nobody's just got that laying around. So 30, 40 grand in today's money. So he's like, hey, even if we've got like 40 grand, Jesus, that's like two to three bucks per person. That's like a little snack meal. Like even if we had that, which we don't, but even if we did, It's not enough. So he's getting kind of snarky with Jesus. And then Andrew pipes in, you know, the the less snarky guy, the one that probably doesn't like the snarky conflict. And he wants to just kind of like calm everything down. And so he's like, hey, well, you know, I've got this boy here and he's got five loaves and two fishes. Look at verse eight. He says, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So no better in faith, but a little better in tone, right? So he's like, hey, you know, we've got these five loaves and two fish, but, you know, I don't know how that helps, but at least I'm not being snarky about it, right? That's the best I can do. 
We don't really know how this boy gets brought into the conversation. I hope that, you know, he had Andrew's consent to give away his lunch. And Andrew wasn't just like, hey, well, here's a boy here. He's got a lunch. I don't know. And the boy's like, what? You know, but it seems as if the boy, you know, is just freely giving up his lunch. Like, I don't know. Somebody needs it. There's an adult. Sure, we'll, we'll give it away. Right. But he also, as Andrew, as he brings this food, he also shares the same hopelessness that Philip had. Right. Again, just a little better tone. Remember, at this point, the disciples had seen Jesus do a lot, a lot of amazing things. But here's the thing. They hadn't seen Jesus work in that exact way. And so they didn't know if he could. They struggled to believe that Jesus could work. And Philip and Andrew, like many of us, when faced with a seemingly impossible task, immediately turned to earthly solutions instead of divine ones. They turned to logic like we often do where we run ourselves ragged, trying to figure out how are we going to solve this problem in front of our face, in our own strength or in our own power. I know that's normally my first reaction when I see a problem. I'm like, man, I'm a pretty creative person. Like I I like to come up with creative solutions, right? And God has granted us the ability to use our brains and our minds to creatively solve issues. But for me, I know when I move from doing that participating with what God's doing in the world to then taking the full weight of the problem solving on my own. And you know how I know? Because I'll find myself lying awake at night, tossing and turning, worried about how my kids are going to turn out and what I need to do to make sure that doesn't happen. I get anxious about the church or our building situation. I wonder if you all are connecting with each other, if you feel loved. I worry about how members are doing as we know of certain needs that you have, and I I can put that on my shoulders and just with earthly solutions, try to figure it out. And I love because the spirit is so patient to graciously remind me of how much I need him in those moments. And it's almost like as he brings the problems to my attention, he's doing it just to see if I'm gonna try to figure it out on my own. The problem's already there. He's not creating it out of thin air. It's just brought to my attention And when I try to figure it out on my own and I finally come to the end of myself, sometimes snarky, maybe sometimes better tone and just hopelessness, and I finally give up, he just takes charge. And he does it in our story today. You know what he does in verse 10? Make the people sit down. Jesus just starts taking over. He's like, fine. All right, cool. Go make the people sit down. And he just takes over. Like he does his thing. I love it. And the disciples just get a front row seat to that. And we in our lives, when Jesus takes over, we just get a front row seat and we're like, oh my gosh. Like no one gets credit in this story, but Jesus. But he's so patient as he does his work. Because you know what? In other gospel accounts we read, and even in some translations of John, you know who he tells to pass out the food in a moment? The disciples. They didn't have the faith. He does his work. He takes charge, but he's like, hey, I'm still going to let you play a part. You're going to get to come along for the ride and be a part of the journey. They get to be a part of the process of God's work, even though they question the power of God. And I love this because Jesus uses the very thing Andrew doubted could work. The five loaves and the two fishes. He could have just used something totally other, but he uses it. And it's like when we come up with a sorry earthly solution for the problem we're facing, sometimes God will take that and multiply it to where it works out. Right? And of course, when that happens with me, I like to take credit. Like, what a great idea, man. Wow. 
Right? It's like if Andrew was telling his grandkids one day this story and he made himself the hero of the story. He's like, man, we didn't know what to do. Jesus was flustered. And I was like, bro, here's five loaves and two fishes. And then he was the hero of the story instead of Jesus. Like how ridiculous would that be, right? Like when we take credit for things that we just are like getting along for the ride, that's how ridiculous we look. And I'm just as guilty as anybody. Jesus is so patient and kind to let the disciples and this little boy be a part. This little boy, John, references that he had barley loaves. This would have been what the poorest of the poorest people had. These weren't these massive fluffy loaves that we think of either. Fish were likely tiny too. This wasn't any more than it would take to feed this young poor boy for lunch. But Jesus takes what he has and he multiplies it to abundance. And we know the story. Jesus sits the crowd down. He gives thanks and then he multiplies the loaves and the fishes to the crowd. We saw the compassion of Jesus the patience of Jesus. And now we see the main driving point of our text, the provision of Jesus. This is where this has all been building. Look at verses 11 through 13. And Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So 15,000 people, massive crowd. I don't know if you can imagine that. He gives thanks to his father and he multiplies the loaves and fishes to an abundance of food. Like this is an incredible amount of food. Imagine if I told you, hey, I need you to plan food for 15,000 people. Like think about the logistics and planning that would have to go into making that possible. And imagine if I told you, you had to have plenty for everyone. Enough for seconds and thirds and fourths for the middle school boys, right? Like this is how much food you have to provide. This was over and above. Philip was snarky. He picked a ridiculous amount of money it would take to feed everyone just a small snack. And Jesus gives them what John says is as much as they wanted. Like they got to eat as much of this great food as they wanted. This wasn't like when your school or youth group like threw a pizza party Right, and you come through the line and you get in first because you think you want to get plenty. And they say, all right, only two slices for the first round. We've got to make sure we've got enough for everyone. And that was after they'd already cut all the slices in half again, right? After they got the pizza from the store. And so you got these two skinny slices and you're like hoping there's some left. It's like, take as much as you want. Like they're just throwing out food, getting to be a part of what God's doing. Abundant and above, eat your fill, feast on what God provides and enjoy it. And even on top of that, there were 12 baskets full. These aren't huge baskets. These are probably about the size of a doggy bag for each disciple to carry. This was common in their culture, not to waste food, but to gather it for themselves or for others. And this shows us the abundant provision of Jesus, that he does far above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. And this miracle is giving us a glimpse into the workings of God. That our best earthly plans are a joke compared to the power and work of Jesus. And this story is not only to test the heart of Philip, but it's also to test ours. In our hearts, when we're faced with situations, do we, myself included, believe that God can provide in this way still today? Do we take to him our cares and our needs or do we take it on our own shoulders and try to figure it out or just give up? This has been something the Spirit has, has been dealing with me on recently, just the last three to six months, I would say. 
Just this matter of taking to my heavenly father that loves me and that is for me, just a simple request. The things that come across my table that I, I, I so run to worry and trying to figure it out on my own and just bring it to me. I want to be invited into your journey. And every time I finally, you know, give it to the father, like he comes through and he shows out. Like not always in the timing I would like, not always in the way that I would have chosen, but he takes care of us. Sometimes I get impatient. I wish God would just snap his fingers and fix the problem. But when I do that, I miss that he is teaching me stuff through the journey. Just like he did Philip and Andrew and this boy, that if I wasn't invited in, I might otherwise miss. And as I get to journey with Jesus in the working out of his plans, I gain intimate knowledge of him. Often I have a tendency to get ahead and work on my own. And I'll even do this. I'll use my belief in the sovereign plan of God as an excuse to not bring God in the process. Well, God's under control. Never take it to him. And I don't ask for his provision. And when I do that, I miss the fact that prayer is not me bringing God into my process, but it's him inviting me to be a part of his. And when that happens, when he's the one in charge, it's so beautiful. I've seen it with like this building we're working on. Like it's all God. We don't have a clue what we're doing. Like we're trying to figure this out as we go, but he's taking like our measly little attempts that we hope are for the kingdom of God and he's making stuff happen. Like I've seen it in many of your lives. Like I get the privilege of hearing your stories and hearing when you take these requests to God, whatever it is, it can seem insignificant. And he takes your prayers and your struggles to trust him and he works the miracles that only he can do. Because that's who God is. That's what he does. He provides. And as we get glimpses into this, even in the small stuff like bread, we begin to trust him. Because ultimately, our trust is not that he gave these people some food or that he gave us some stuff that we wanted. Ultimately, all these are signs, a roadmap pointing us to Jesus himself. See, the response of these people, we heard it read, we won't read it again, but the response of these people was to affirm that Jesus was a prophet, which was half true, to call him a king, to try to make him a king, which also was half true. See, Jesus is the better prophet. He's more powerful than Elisha, who fed 100 men with 20 barley loaves in 2 Kings. They would have remembered this story. And he is the true king. We've seen that. But this crowd of 5,000 men wanted to take the power and provision of Jesus and misuse it for their own purposes. That's one reason this number is mentioned. That's the number of men that they would have needed to make up the amount for an army to begin to fight back the powers that be. And they were ready to go. They just needed a leader. Someone lead this physical insurrection against the Roman army and free us from this temporary oppression. But Jesus would have none of it. At the end of our story... I mean, you think about it, Jesus, 15,000 people here, like give the altar call, tell them where to sign up to give, right? Like tell them where to fund your ministry. And he's just gone, withdraws to the mountain by himself because he knows he's got a much bigger battle to prepare for than a physical Roman army. See, he does deal with all physical needs and he will, but there's so much more happening. Jesus came to give us so much more than just some bread and fish. Ultimately, he came to give us himself. It's not just a little boy 
that provides us the very son of God. That's what we see in the cross where he offers up his perfect life as the once for all sacrifice for sinful hearts. It's still why we take bread every week and break it to remind us of the body of Jesus that was broken as he was the Passover lamb offered up to free us from our enslavement to sin. And he's the true bread that he offers us, you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he says, come and feast. And there's plenty. There's plenty. There's abundant because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There's nothing you've done. There's not a mistake you've made that his grace cannot cover. And there's more than enough for everyone. And as he gives himself over to death on our behalf to rescue us, he does trust his father's plan perfectly. He gives up his own life. He doesn't get snarky. He doesn't doubt. He stays steadfast because he knew that he would rise again. In the resurrection, he shows us that he's powerful enough to provide for all our needs. If death itself can't beat Jesus, a little bit of hunger is no match for his power. His heart begins to beat. The flesh that was torn to shreds received life. And this shows us that even though, yes, he is the true bread that was broken, that his life in the resurrection was restored. And that's a foretaste of what happens for all of us who believe. Our broken lives are made whole. We are restored. All who trust in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, with those people, he's creating a new humanity. This might be why we see 12 baskets full, a new 12 tribes of Israel. This is better. This is the fulfillment of the old covenant, and not just 12 tribes of Israel, but a people of all nations, all tribes, and all tongues gathered around the throne singing praises to God. This is what we're expecting. Jesus is the point of this story. And he's coming back to finish the work. Like, yes, we experience brokenness, but one day we will experience his true provision in its holistic fullness, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, both individually and corporately. And when he does, like, we're going to have the best meal ever with our king. It's going to be a blast. The food's going to be great. There's going to be reason to party and there's going to be a lot more than 15,000 people there. It's going to be a blast because there will be a reason to celebrate. Death will be no more. There's this prophecy of this meal in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. We're told there's going to be enough for everyone on an even better mountain that's more green than the grass we saw in our story today. It says on this mountain, like, just try to get this vision. The Lord of armies you can talk about the commander, the chief, the Lord of armies, not just a physical army. He will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat. I'm amen in right there. Fine vintage wine. Come on. Like on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud. There'll be no need for it. The shroud that's hovering over all peoples because we know what death is like. The sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. And when this commander, when this king, when this prophet speaks, his word comes true. The final provision will happen. And in the meantime, he grants us foretaste as he provides for us in the here and now. So because he's risen and because he's promised to return, we can trust that he will provide for us. Even when we doubt, 
Even as the disciples doubted, he still provided for them. See, I, I get like, as we talk about trusting his provision, there's probably a tension in your hearts, especially if you've had to go without or you've experienced grief. See, we live in the already, but not yet. The day where we see provision, but we also see lack. We see need. Even in our own hearts, we're not fulfilled. We're not satisfied. We're not full. But in this time, while we wait for him to return and fix the mess, here's the beauty. You get to be a part of God's story as he patiently invites you in. He invites you in as you are provided for to then provide for others. And you get to share compassion with the needy. He invites us to be patient with others as he was patient with us. He invites us to provide for others as he provides for us. It's the story of the scriptures. We are blessed, not in there, but to be a blessing. And there's plenty to go around in the economy of God. So we don't have to grasp and hang on to things of this age thinking, well, I hope there's not enough for everyone else. But rather we let our grip go and let stuff flow freely through us to the world. This is what we all long for. This is what we all want to be a part of. We can try to temporarily satisfy it by being a part of temporary big things like sporting events or concerts. And those can be good things we enjoy. But the biggest thing ever that you get to be a part of is God's work in the world. As God provides for us, we become the hands and feet of his provision in the world. This is beautiful, church. Like what you are is a miracle. You get to be a tangible picture of God's goodness. Like the disciples, we just get to hop on board and pass out food to the crowds, right? Have you ever got to, give, got to give away someone else's money? You know how fun it is? Like you get to be the guy that goes to somebody they're getting a raise, but you're not having to like take anything out of your own pocket. Like we're just like giving out the goodness of God to people. It's not ours anyways. Even the stuff he gives us, we're just like, here, you want some? Sure. Like there's more where that comes from. We just know that God is going to provide. You get to hand out the goodness of God like candy. And just like this poor boy, God takes what little we have, even our skepticism, even with our doubt. We don't even think it's worth anything, right? I hear this. Well, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to bring to the table. Like God takes what you have and he turns it into something earth shattering. And it's through the everyday stuff, stuff that we think is measly and worthless, It's the simple, encouraging text that you send to a fellow church member, just letting them know you're praying for them and you're thinking about their need. It's the babysitting for a worn out couple that needs a night out. It's opening your home to the young single person that wishes they had a family of their own. It's a bag of coffee delivered to the young mom with a newborn. It's the late night prayers for those dealing with aging parents. It's spending time with someone week after week, just helping them grow in their spiritual formation. It's giving to the poor and needy, to those who have less than we do, not to make ourselves feel better, but because we've been made rich in Christ. And it's not just giving money, by the way, that's the easy part. It's giving friendship and time and relationship, which is a lot harder than just throwing money at a problem. It's speaking out for those who have no voice, for the oppressed and the hurting. Even if you're called names, you're accused of being something you know you're not. It's listening to their stories, working to provide freedom for the hurting in the here and now as a foretaste of what's to come. So we give not only our money or just our time, our energy, our gifts, but we take our entire lives as measly as we think it might be. And we give it over to the kingdom of God. And we trust that in the hands of God, he will multiply it and make it something eternally beautiful. 
Like your life can matter for eternity. And our story today, and even more importantly, the cross and resurrection tells us that God will do that because he provides. And we know this, not just because he gave us bread, but because he gave us himself. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, you have the spirit of God and dwelt in you. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.